Well, good morning. It's good to be together again. Um, this is one of my uh, favorite paragraphs in our confession. It's, it's one of the shortest and most succinct, and yet uh, I think a great encouragement to us as Christians, both from a, a natural, physical, worldly standpoint, uh, the world in which we live, to be assured of God's use of means to govern that world, but also in the spiritual realm, that God has declared from His Word that He has committed Himself to certain means, and that we can be encouraged and more confident in, in our own spiritual growth, or, or more confident in the Lord with respect to our spiritual growth, because we understand these things. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read here from a passage that Luke records to us, for us, as an eyewitness of being on a shipwreck. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would give us uh, His Spirit to help us to discern His Word. Father, we are grateful for Your abiding mercy towards us, for Your providential rule of all things, from the least to the greatest, according to Your infallible and immutable counsel, according to Your eternal wisdom, and according to your wise and good purposes. Help us, uh, Lord, as your people, uh, not only to understand the doctrine of providence, but to have our hearts encouraged, to have our faith more firmly established, and to have our, our hearts filled with an awe and a reverence and a worship of our triune God. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this is no doubt a story that you're, you're familiar with. Surely even uh, children, as, as you read through the Bible, this, this is a story that stands out because it is dramatic, it's memorable. Paul is being transported. He's in the custody of a Roman centurion. He's on his way to Rome. He's made his appeal, and he's now going to sit before Caesar himself. But on the way, uh, you, you didn't in the ancient world just book an airline ticket. You didn't even book a, a passage on a passenger ship. There were no such things. You had to book passage on a freight liner, basically a freight ship. And all of these freight ships were, were privately owned, and they, they were essentially mercenaries. And in, a, in, a, in the broadest sense of that word, a, a captain of a ship would take on a cargo, in a sense, on consignment. And he was rewarded, he was paid, if that cargo reached safely the other side. And so uh, under the authority of Rome, this centurion had made possible for Paul and other soldiers to be on board this cargo ship, and they're transporting this cargo. Now, because of the time of year, Paul advised them not to go any further, that it would be too dangerous to travel over the winter. But we're told in the narrative that the, the centurion listened more to the captain, who again, who is a profiteer, and they, the majority decided, and again, this, the sailors on board would have had a financial interest as well in persevering, proceeding. And so they tried to, attempted to sail along the coastline of Crete, but a major storm comes up. And Paul had already warned them, just according to prudence, according to what often happens this time of year. Paul wasn't necessarily working from some supernatural revelation at that point. He was appealing to prudence. They rejected that appeal to prudence, as is often the case with men. 
And, but we find in, in verse 27, the men have gone without food for a number of days. The ship has been buffeted and beaten. And in, in verse 27, we read the following. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. When the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, or then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. In other words, they, they let their lifeboats drift. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now I'll begin with this text to illustrate something that our, our fathers recognized from this passage. This is a passage that describes in, in some detail God's providential care of Paul, and along with Paul, the centurion and all the soldiers, and indeed all the men on the boat. And how did God preserve them? By ordinary means. Now we saw last week in our, in our sermon we, we read about Jesus calming the wind and the storm. Here was a great tempest on the Sea of Galilee. They're in a much smaller vessel. This vessel that, these, that Paul and the, and the soldiers are on had 276 persons. This was a big vessel. The apostles, or the disciples, and Jesus were in a much smaller craft, overcome by the wind and the waves, and Jesus merely speaks and says, Hush! And the wind and the waves stop. Why did God not do that here? on the way to Rome with Paul. He certainly could have done it. And, and surely we do not doubt that he could have done that. But God made use of means. In fact, our fathers quote a reference, footnote in our, in our confession. If we go to the chapter, our, our text for today, or our paragraph for today, is paragraph 3 in chapter 5. 
And you'll notice there are two in the footnote. If you have a copy of the confession that has footnotes in it, you'll see Acts 27, verses 31 and 34. In verse 31, Paul says to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Paul says, here is the ordinary means. God has given us a physical place of refuge, this ship. And it may seem like the wiser course is to jump into a lifeboat and make way. But Paul says, according, and Paul's prophesying now here, he's speaking now with a a manner of supernatural revelation, you will not, you will perish unless you stay and submit yourself to the means of this particular ship. Now that's not advice for every circumstance, that's the, the, the appeal that Paul makes there. But we also see a footnote to verse 44, and the rest, meaning the rest of the men, were saved on planks or on pieces of the ship. The ordinary means of a piece of floating wood after the ship broke up was the means of rescue for these men. Now look at paragraph 3 in our confession. Again, this is, this is one of the shorter uh, statements in all of our confession, shorter paragraphs in all of our confession, but it's, it's a profound one, and it, it has significant implications. Remember, if we read both sideways, read forwards and backwards, in our confession of faith, this one is very significant. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet he is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. There are two main points that we need to, we need to discern in the paragraph, two main ideas with respect to the doctrine of providence that we need to grasp. First is that God, has, God ordinarily uses means. So that's our first point we need to understand, is the ordinary use of means. And again, the the scope of this is all of creation, where God is carrying out his eternal decree, God ordinarily uses means. But the second point is, God is free. God is free to work without, above, and against those ordinary means. And so we need to have both of those things, concepts fixed in our mind, that ordinarily, God uses means. But God is free, he's not bound, he has the complete liberty to work without, against, or above those means. Now, let's elaborate on, on those, those, two, those two main points, those two ideas. The ordinary use of means. Now, when we hear the word ordinary, what comes to mind? What, give me some synonyms of ordinary. Plain. Common. Customary. Usual. Right? Typical. Normal. But there is also, do you hear in the root of ordinary another word? Ordinance. Or ordain, right? Same root word. And and that's really, both ideas are here in, in our confession. In fact, in the older use of the word ordinary, the the older use of that, people would more likely hear the second meaning than the first they would hear that this was an ordinance, this was ordained, this was a rule, a statute of God. In Isaiah 55, this is another footnote, you'll see Isaiah 55, we read this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Isaiah is making an appeal to the ordinary in the sense that this was by ordinance, this was by God's decree, by God's rule, that the clouds would bring forth rain. The snow would bring forth moisture to the ground. And because of the moisture, 
and of course the sun and heat at the appropriate time, that plants would grow and that they, those plants would bear fruit. So even in creation, we see that God uses means. And they are not only common means, but they are means that are directed by God. We go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and we see that God caused this, the plants to bear forth seed after their kind. For the animals to bear forth young after their kind. So we know this is true, and so we know this in other ways. Think about just as we go in a little while to our fellowship meal. Think about the ordinary means of providing for that. Now, we can start with someone grab a crock pot. I just saw a crock pot come through just a minute ago. Somebody grabs a crock pot and they put it in there. Well, that's not the end of this. That's not even the beginning of the story, is it? That food came from somewhere. Someone worked hard and either grew that, that uh, vegetable or harvested that meat and provided for that livestock, or they earned the money to go out and buy the same. But even go back further, how was it that that animal was raised up to maturity? Well, it ate grass, and God ordained the processes of its digestion and all of those things to cause that animal to grow. Where did the grass come from? You see, we can go back further and further and further. Ordinarily, by God's rule, this is what happens. And so when we sit down and we bow our heads and we give God thanks for the food, we can say, He has provided for it. Even though we are the ones who went to the store and bought it, or we're the ones who picked it from our gardens. But we recognize God ordinarily uses means. And He has ordained, He has caused as a rule that His creation will be governed by means. It would not be right for us to sit down and pray, God, will you provide to pray as Jesus commanded us? Give us this day our daily bread. But I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to simply sit here comfortably in my recliner or maybe even my bed and just, Lord, will you provide my daily bread? And the Lord would answer to you from his, script, from his word in what way? Get out of your bed, get dressed, and go work. That is the means that I have given, and that work can take on a variety of, of, of examples, but that's the means. God has made ordinances or rules that generally govern his creation for the accomplishment of his eternal decree. But then we have to ask, is God constrained in such a way that he only uses these ordinary means? So God has, in a sense, written into the very fabric of creation certain rules, certain ordinances of how things actually work, how they ordinarily work. But is God then constrained in such a way that he can't operate outside of that, or above that, or even against it? We hear phrases sometimes like, well, you want to put God in a box. You heard that? Maybe you even said that. Far too often... Unfortunately, that's, that's usually said by someone who wants to practice something that's contrary to God's Word or outside the, the bounds of Scripture or claim some personal act or revelation of God. You, you just want to put God in a box. No, I'm saying God didn't tell you that. You just want to put God in a box. Or the phrase, my God wouldn't do that. Or my God would only do this. God is at perfect liberty to operate outside of the ordinary means. 
In fact, this is the, the theological justification here in this paragraph for miracles, for supernatural works of God. Supernatural meaning above or against nature. God is, is free. He is at liberty to act supernaturally. In fact, a miraculous work is an act of God's providence. And certainly we believe that God no longer speaks to men in extraordinary ways. We, we confess that in, in our confession of faith, in, in, very, in the very first pa- paragraph or the very first chapter in our confession of faith. We're speaking about God revealing himself through his word in the very last phrase. <clears throat> Which maketh the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So we do not believe that God is giving men ongoing special revelation. We don't believe that he is speaking prophetically to men. We also can look back at the chapter on the decree of God in chapter 3, in paragraph 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. So God has decreed not only what would happen, but all the means that would cause that to happen. We looked last week at first cause, which is always God, and second causes, which are us, or creatures, or environmental processes, or forces of nature. And so often we, as those who would rightly consider ourselves cessationists, meaning the cessation of God's ongoing special revelation, the cessation of the apostolic gifts, speaking in tongues and healing and and those kinds of things that God can still do. God can still heal miraculously, but he hasn't he hasn't given that stewardship, that gift, to a human being, as he did to the apostles, for the purpose of authenticating his word. So often as cessationists, we're charged with putting God in a box. We're, we're char- we're, accusations come at us like, well, you don't believe in the Holy Spirit, or you don't believe in the supernatural. You believe that God does not perform miracles, or you, you believe that he doesn't work through extraordinary means. No, we don't believe that at all. In fact, this is, that's the next part that we see that's important in this. God, um, back to chapter 5, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means. That's what we confess unambiguously without apology. God has hardwired, if you want to say it that way, his created order to work according to certain rules. And so we think about, we talked about last, last week, gravity. God is the first cause But if you jump off the building, it will be the second cause of gravity, combined with your own folly, that causes you to go splat on the concrete, right? Gravity is an ordinance. It's a rule. And even even the pagans would call that a law of nature, that certain things happen according to a rule. There's there's a hardwired nature to, to this universe, and yet... Notice it's a critical connecting word there, the conjunction yet or but. God is free. See, God is not constrained. God exists outside of his creation. Remember, one of the things that we've sought to do is maintain this distinction between the creature and the creator. We are not pagans. We, we, are, we are not 
uh, those who believe that God exists inside of his creation, he's outside of it, he transcends it. He spoke it into existence, and yet he is outside of his creation as God. So God, therefore, is free. God remains free to act in extraordinary ways and even to perform extraordinary miracles. In no way is God constrained by his ordinances, by his ordinary means. And look, look what we see next, yet he is free to work. And here's three key words, without, above, and against them, meaning these ordinary means. God is free to work without, above, and against these ordinary means at his pleasure. Now the, the, the footnotes on each of those three, and there's three separate footnotes, one corresponding to each one of the words, above, without, above, and against. And I think they're fascinating things to ponder. In Hosea, the book of Hosea, God is speaking to his people through the prophet Hosea. And in chapter chapter 1, beginning of verse 6, I'll back up a verse. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. For I will have... More, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. This is a picture of God working without means. When, when God delivered Israel from her enemies, how did he ordinarily do it? Well, through sword, war, horses, horsemen, armies, and so forth, right? Ordinarily, he would give the enemies of Israel into their hands on the battlefield. That's an ordinary means. I mean, throughout history, we have seen one army conquer another. That's quite ordinary. But God said, I will do this without those things. I will just speak the destruction of your enemies, and I will do so without means. The second footnote, so that God is free to work without means. He, he, he is not constrained by the, his own ordinances. He can just work without those means. But he also can work above them. And this is a, another interesting one. The, the reference is in Romans 4. Romans 4, verses 19 to 21. And this is Paul speaking about Abraham's faith. He's speaking about Abraham's faith. And, and the faith of Sarah. And he, and he says, he reminds us that, Ab- that God told Abraham and Sarah that Sarah would bear a son. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. And yet God delivered on his promise. And so this is an example of God working above ordinary means. Now, the son of promise Isaac came. Now, Isaac could have just, God just could have spoken and Isaac would have been there. Either as an infant or as a fully grown man. God could have just spoken and Isaac would have been there. But he didn't. He used, in a sense, an ordinary means. Isaac was formed in the womb of Sarah. Just as any ordinary child would be formed in the womb of his or her mother. And Isaac was conceived in an ordinary way. This was not an immaculate conception. This was an ordinary conception. But what, was, what, what, what is above 
in a sense, the ordinary means. Sarah was 90. She was well past ordinary childbearing years. So Isaac came as the son of promise to a woman whose womb had been barren, and there was no ordinary or natural expectation that her womb would cease being barren at 90 years of age. So we can say God worked above an ordinary means. Not completely contrary to the ordinary means, but above the ordinary means. But then the third example, he's free to work against an ordinary means. And the footnote here is to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. In the third chapter, and you know the story well, it's, all the kids know the story because it's a, another dramatic scene. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down before this idol that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And he brings them in and said, we're going to fire up the band again, the lyre and the trumpet, and the whole thing is going to come. And as soon as that fires up, if you are willing to bow down, he's essentially offering them clemency. They had violated his decree. I'm going to let it slide if you will bow down now publicly. And you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember what they said? We won't do that, king. God is able to deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we will not bow down before you. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar responds in just rage. And he, he had already warned them that if you will not bow down, I'm going to throw you into this hot furnace. Probably a coal-burning furnace. And they wouldn't do it. So in his rage, Nebuchadnezzar calls out for the billows. He calls out for the fire to be stoked up and heated to seven times its normal heat. We have one of those little egg kind of grills, and, and I, I love to use it because it gets really, really hot. I love to cook a, a burger or a steak or something. You really get a good char on it when it's 800 degrees. But I've noticed a couple of times it has a cast iron grate, and I want to pull that out while it's still hot and, and spray it with oil so I can set it aside and leave it so that the cast iron stays seasoned. But I've noticed several times it's been so hot, I pull it out, and just a little bit of oil, and immediately it bursts into flames because it is so hot. Well, this, this furnace was heated to seven times its normal heat. So hot was it that the men who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire themselves perished from the heat. And yet, what do we, what do we find? Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire, and he says, did I not see, did we not throw three men in? Yet we see four walking. Three men walking unharmed and another with them like unto the Son of Man. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the text tells us, not only did they not die, even their clothes did not burn up. And not only did their clothes not burn up, they didn't even smell like smoke. We had a fire the other night on our patio and it is not true that I didn't come in smelling like smoke, or that I did not come in smelling like smoke. Even just a campfire, you smell it. You, you can later on, even the next day in your clothes, hmm, that's, remember where I was last night, it smells like smoke. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not even bear the aroma of fire. God worked against. What ordinarily happens when you throw something into the fire? Well, it burns. It's an important lesson for little kids to learn, isn't it? It burns. It, it is destroyed, and God worked against that ordinary means for his own 
pleasure. Can we think of other examples from the Scripture where God worked without or against or above those ordinary means? There's a lot of them. Can you think of other examples where God worked contrary to the ordinary means? Feeding 5,000. He worked above, yep, ordinarily, a couple loaves of bread, a few fish, would feed a small handful of people. It was ordinary food, ordinary provision, but it was not ordinary that that would feed thousands. He worked above an ordinary means. Very good. What else? Axe head floated. He worked against, ordinarily, iron. What, what, do you, what does happen with iron when it goes into the water? It plummets to the bottom. But God worked against that ordinary means. The, 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 the sun stood still, stood still and even turned back in time. God worked against the ordinary means. So we could, we could go on and on and think of, of many examples. Peter was called out of the boat by the Lord and walked on the water. Well, that does, that's not normal. That's contrary to the ordinary means. It's against the force of gravity. And we could probably think of others. And, and just so think, you know, we had, uh, at one point a donkey spoke. Well, that's not normal. Uh, the Word of God is normal, but God worked above that ordinary means by making a dumb beast speak His Word. Now, Mary's conception is it was uh, far above the ordinary means. And we, again, we could, we could multiply examples, but it's not only the natural world, and this is one of the, the key points here, is it's not only the natural world that God providentially rules and governs according to means. By his most wise, infallible, and immutable providence, God governs the spiritual as well as the, as the physical. Now earlier, I referenced Isaiah 55, but I only read part of it. You'll notice the footnote is Isaiah 55, both verses 10 and 11. I'm going to read the whole passage now. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving, sow to the, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, the, you see the, that God, through his prophet Isaiah, is making a very important connection. God says, we all know it's a fact. It's a fact of nature. Even the pagans will acknowledge this. That rain and snow come down from heaven. They water the earth. And it causes seeds and plants to bring forth and sprout and giving seed and giving bread and giving all of the fruit of the ground. No one denies that. But God says, we all know that is true, and in the same way, or so shall my word go forth. God, what is God saying? In the very same way that I govern nature according to means, I also govern the spiritual world according to means, the means of my word. This is looking ahead to the doctrine of the ordinary means of grace. It's introduced right here. As, as a consequence of the doctrine of providence. Now, if we will allow in our minds that God uses ordinary means 
out there in the world. And we see that with the sunshine and the plants and, and the water, and we, and we see that in our, in our ordinary lives and ordinary things. But yet when it comes to spiritual, we think God just acts randomly? That God doesn't employ specific, ordained means? And we can despise them sometimes because they do seem so common. Do we think our children are less of a miracle because they come to us by common, ordinary means? I hope not. I hope we look at this as this is a blessing from God. Do we look at the meal on our table? Do we cease to give thanks because it came to us in very plain and ordinary ways? And yet when it comes to spiritual things, we look for something supernatural or we think, well, it's not that good. It's not that miraculous if it came to us by ordinary means. Look ahead in our confession to chapter 14 and have in mind the testimony of Isaiah that just as the rain and snow come down from heaven, so shall the word of God go forth. And in chapter 14, this is the chapter on saving faith. Beginning in paragraph 1, the grace of faith whereby the elect, again those ordained from eternity, whereby the elect are enabled to believe in the saving of their soul, or to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And, notice the word, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God, it is increased and strengthened. Now, we have evidence in this paragraph that we are right to consider the word ordinary in both senses. Remember, we talked about there are two different kind of levels of meaning to the word. The first is plain, common, typical, right? But the second meaning is ordained, instituted, or synonym in, we find in chapter 14, paragraph 1, appointed. So we have the grace of faith. We know that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through the grace of God alone. And all of those, without exception, every last one, not one will perish whom God has elected from eternity to save and to ransom and to rescue. And then, but how does that happen? Ordinarily. Not only typically or commonly, but by ordinance, by appointment, by decree. This happens according to the ministry of the word. By which also, and by the administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper prayer and other means appointed of God, it, meaning this saving faith, is increased and strengthened. And of course, the footnote, one of the footnotes in, this, in that paragraph is Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And then Paul goes on to ask, well, but how can they hear if no one preaches? And how can they preach if they're not sent? How beautiful are those, beautiful the feet of those who bring the good news. But also in our, our Baptist confession of faith, we work these things out in question 90. What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sins? And the answer, to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, Repentance unto life with the diligent use of all the outward means, whereby Christ communicates, 
communicateth or shares to us the benefits of his redemption. There are ordinary means, meaning not only common or typical, but decreed, commanded, instituted, appointed means. Then three questions later, question 93 asks this question, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of his redemption? The answer, the outward and ordinary means. So again, we hear in that word ordinary, both plain, common, typical, normal, but also by ordinance, appointed, instituted. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, baptism, the word supper, and prayer, all which means are made effectual to the elect for salvation. And the term salvation here, we've, we've talked before, is is to be understood comprehensively, to include our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our preservation to glory. These are the ordinary means that God has used, has promised to bless. But once again, is God free to work against or without, against and above these ordinary means? In, in the created world, the answer is yes. In the spiritual world, the answer is yes. God is free to work without or above or even against these ordinary means. And, and surely you have probably heard testimonies of those who've grown up in church or they've, they've been in church and they've heard the gospel, they've heard it preached, and they could even tell you the day and time and even the text and sermon that they heard by which God converted them and saved them. There are others that you know or have heard about that that, that was not their testimony at all. I, I heard a story recently. There's a man who was up on the roof and he was getting ready to take his own life. And down below, unbeknownst to him, one of the Gideons in a, was handing out Bibles and handed it to a, to a guy who was coming out of a bar drunk. And the guy despised the scriptures and he took it and he threw it, chunked the, the Bible up in the air, and it landed on the roof at the feet of a man who was about to take his own life. And he read it and believed. Now, I don't know the, the truth of the story necessarily, but it's an example of a, an extraordinary circumstance. God worked above. Now, he uses his word ordinarily, but to have the word of God just kind of drop out of the sky, as it were, at your feet, the moment of greatest weakness and temptation, that's not ordinarily how that happens. God is free to work above without, even against, those ordinary means. One of the particularly nagging questions or, or perplexing questions that this doctrine helps us to wrestle with is the question, what about someone who is unable to hear or even to understand the Word of God? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God is then there no hope of rescue for an infant who dies before they're even able to hear and understand the Word of God. Is there no hope for one who is mentally incapable of understanding the Word of God? Well, our fathers thought much about these issues as well. And if you turn with me to chapter 10 in our confession, 
chapter 10, paragraph 3, contemplates this, this circumstance. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. Now here's the dilemma. We confess, according to the Scriptures, that every man, every woman, is born at enmity with God. Every man and every woman from the womb is a son of Adam, a daughter of Adam. Therefore has inherited the original guilt of Adam. Even before they've been able consciously, willfully able to commit sin. So, one of the, to, to the thorny question of what happens in such a circumstance when an infant perishes. One of the probably the most popular way of dealing with that dilemma, is to take the Pelagian, semi-Pelagian approach that says, well, they're not really dead in sin. Man is merely spiritually wounded, but, a, but an infant is still innocent. An, in, an infant is not guilty before God, and that's where you get with some of these things like age of accountability. And that if a child dies very young, they are not morally culpable. And so, of course, they go to heaven because they, they haven't actually committed an offense against God for which they are morally responsible. Well, we have to reject that, don't we? We have to reject that. Jesus says, you must be born again. Okay, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, that's the ordinary, ordinary instrumental means Hearing the word of God and by the act of the Spirit upon that person's soul, in light of the word they've heard, God regenerates them, causes them to be born again. What about one who's not able to hear or understand? And what we confess is that in the case of elect infants, the statement is narrowed to elect infants. Dying in infancy are regenerated. How are they regenerated? By what means? Without a means. Without the means. God in his mercy just does it. He regenerates them. He causes them to be born again. We do not say that God ignored the sin. That God just looked over the problem of the sin nature. But according to the mercy of Christ, God the Holy Spirit regenerates that one. And it goes on to say, so also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called. What, what an encouragement to those who have lost young children. And see, sometimes we want pastorally, and even as brothers and sisters, we want to encourage with each other sentimentally, but not according to truth. Um, and, and even uh, our dear brother, Charles Spurgeon, um, a, 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 a giant of a man in, in the kingdom of God, and yet I think he was wrong on this point. When he republished the confession for his church, they modified the language here. He says, all infants rather than elect infants. I hope he's right. I really hope he's right, but we can't say that from the scriptures. But we can say what Jesus said in John 6, that all that the Father gives to me, I will not lose even so God is able to work 
without the ordinary means of hearing the word of God, having the spirit of God work in a man's heart, in a woman's heart, according to the word heard, and the spirit of God bringing new life and new birth. God is free to work without that means. He is free to work above or even against those ordinary means. So I pray this will be a great encouragement to us um, as we not only submit ourselves to the Word of God, believing that God has given this as an ordinance. He's given to us baptism. He's given to us the Lord's Supper. He's given to us prayer as ordinances, things that He has commanded us to do, but He's not just empty commands. He's attached to these things very precious and great promises, that this is the means by which I will call sinners out of darkness and into life. This, these are the means by which those whom I have redeemed and regenerated and caused to be born again by my Spirit's power, I will use those same means to build them up, to establish them, to encourage them, to convict them of sin, to bring them to renew their repentance, and to preserve them and keep them and hold them fast to me until the day of Christ's return or till their own death. So God has, has appointed these means. And, and these, these means are good for us. They are necessary for us. And we have a duty to give our focus and attention to honoring God in the use of those means. In the same way that it would be foolhardy for us to sit at our table with our empty plates and pray, God, would you come fill my plate? The wise counselor would come, would come to such a man and say, you need to go work. You need to go out, as uh, the phrase from Dave Ramsey that I like, go leave the cave, kill something, and drag it back to the cave to eat. That's what you need to do. In the same way, it is a sad thing when I see brothers and sisters who are languishing, who are spiritually hungry, and, and in a sense, they're doing the very same thing. They're staring down at their empty plate. Lord, will you fill my plate? Are you using the means that he has given to you? Are you submitting yourself to regular attendance to the ordinances of God? Not just showing up, but are you giving yourself to that body and soul? Are you preparing ahead of time? Are you thinking through these things? Are you seeking to apply the means that he's given? No, I want something else. I'm expecting God to use to work against and without and above his ordinary means. Well, you don't reasonably do that in other spheres of life. And yet, how many will do that in the spiritual realm? And think, I want God to work in some other means. I want to just wake up one day and be sanctified. <laughs> I want one day to wake up and be set free from the sin that plagues me now. And that God has provided means. And, he, and we ought to expect that according to his ordinances, according to his decree, he will make these means efficacious to us useful, helpful to us in both the common kingdom, the natural realm, but also in the spiritual world as well. So may this doctrine be an encouragement to us and, and maybe um, a kick in the pants, uh, maybe a reminder to persevere, uh, maybe a, uh, a hedge against some of the discouragements that come our way and we think, because we begin to think of these things not in the ordinary um, appointed way, but we begin to think of an ordinary as too common, too simple, too plain, too regular. Well, how can, because of the, 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 the magnitude of my, my sin or the magnitude of my 
sorrow or the magnitude of my difficulty. I need something extraordinary. I need something supernatural. I need something above God's ordinary means. When God says to us, have faith to believe that I will work through those ordinary means, and yet God is free. He may surprise you. It's why we pray when somebody is sick. We pray, Lord, will you heal them? Will you take the cancer away? And we have in this very church heard testimony after testimony over the years of how just last week at a prayer meeting, we heard testimony of one of the the, the loved ones of our church member who said they went in for a scan and the cancer's gone. They can't find the lump on the scan anymore. What's the explanation for that? God worked without means. Ordinarily, works with means. He might use chemo, he might use nutrition, he might use some other thing, he might use the, the surgeon's scalpel, but in this case, he worked without that. God is free to do that. Our God is a miracle-working God. Don't ever take the, accept the charge to you as a Reformed person that, God doesn't do, that you believe God doesn't do miracles. Of course you do. We ought to. Just because we believe that God ordinarily uses means, that's why we say if you're sick, go to the doctor. Go seek a cure. Go, go seek a remedy. But also pray. And know that God is free to work against, above, and without those ordinary means. We're running short on time. Let's let's pray and we'll join together in worship here in a few moments. Father, we are grateful that you have delivered us. You've ransomed us out of the, the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your own Son. We pray for those here among us that have not yet known the overwhelming, conquering, gracious work of God in Christ Jesus. And I pray that these ordinary means of giving our attention to your word, submitting ourselves to it, submitting ourselves to the ordinances that you've given to your church, that you will use these things effectively, profitably, mercifully and gloriously among your people to sanctify us in the truth and that you you will use these means this very day to call sinners out of darkness and into light. We pray for our children who are here. We pray that by your Spirit's work and by the means of the preaching of the Word of God, by by singing, by prayer, by the reading of your Scriptures, that, that they will come to know the great need that they have to be born again. And then we'll look to you in faith in Christ alone. Amen.